0: Welcome to this week's edition of Stephen and Company here on the Stephen Perkins Program. We are getting dangerously close to the end of this summer series, and I hope that you've enjoyed the interviews that we've had so far. If you need to catch up on any of the interviews that you may have missed, or if you just want to listen to them again, I get it, they've been great, you can do that by going to outsetmagazine.com slash podcast. That's podcast with an S, you know, like plural, Uh, or by searching on itunes for this show before i get into this week's episode as you know i have to give some love to our sponsor this week and that is octopod because their line of portable charging solutions will make sure that your phone or tablet never has to go dead again be a responsible technology owner okay be an adult make sure that your phones don't die and for the listeners of this week's show, if you go to octodashpod.com outset and enter the promo code outset at checkout, you will get 50% off your order. All you have to do is go to octodashpod.com outset, enter the promo code outset, and you will get a device that will make sure your phone or tablet never dies again for 50% off. Now, on this week's episode, I am talking with Garrett Humbertson. Garrett is the assistant editor at Red Millennial, good friend of us here, at outset and he just recently graduated from regent university in this episode we talk about the convention of states project something that he's been very involved in donald trump and everything else that's happened in the past week so it's quite packed so draw yourself a relaxing bath maybe add some bubbles i'm not sure what your personal style is but sit back and enjoy my interview with garrett humbertson Garrett Humbertson is the assistant editor at Red Millennial, uh, a good friend of mine. A good publication. His publication's a good friend of mine. So excited to have him on the show this week. Garrett, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Absolutely. So I, I have you on this week. Um, I'm looking to get Julia, of course, on soon. Um, you know, get get some of the get some of the Red Millennial team on here. Um, so it's exciting to talk to you. Now, one of the things that uh, well, actually, let, let's go ahead and. Um, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself, some of the things that you're working on in addition to Red Millennial and just kind of tell people about you. Yeah. So my name's, uh, Garrett Humberson. I'm
1: an assistant editor for Red Millennial at redmillennial.com, uh, which was founded by Julia Porterfield. And, uh, it's just a fantastic site, similar to Outset. Um, and we, you know, cover news and we have perspective from young conservatives and young libertarians. Um, and also I've been, um, Partnering with the Convention of States project, and we're working on a few things, uh, videos, and that sort of things. I usually, uh, or I just uh, graduated from Region University with degrees in cinema, so I'm really excited to get the message out there about liberty and conservatism.
0: Absolutely. Now, one of the things you mentioned, uh, Convention of States, you've been working with, and I found out about them because of you, and I wrote the June cover store in outset um, about them, and I interviewed some of their leaders. Uh, here in Texas and their national leaders. Really incredible organization. I think a lot of people don't understand the power that we have to call a convention of the states. And a lot of people don't understand that there is right now a pretty big movement to have one called. Um, And and I just wanted to ask you to kind of of give us an update on it. Um, What success have they had this past year? And what does the future look like?
1: Sure, and by the way, that was a fantastic write-up that you did. Well, um, you. I've heard that from a lot of people. It's one of the best articles out there, period, from anyone on this. Just very accurate, very well-researched.
0: Well, I appreciate that.
1: So, um, yeah, so Convention of States, a lot of people don't know about it. Like, it's in the Constitution. It's in Article 5 of the Constitution. And basically, if you look at history during the Philadelphia Convention when they were writing the Constitution, this the this is why they put it in there. It's exactly for this moment. Is when the government... Uh, the federal government centralizes and gets out of control, the states can call a convention and say we're going to put in new safeguards, new constitutional, constitutional amendments to basically say, you know, we're not going to put up with this anymore. So there's uh, this growing movement. There was a movement during Reagan's administration, uh, a lot of states were calling for a balanced budget convention, but it fell one state short. And since then, we've acc- accrued about $200 trillion in un- unfunded liabilities. Uh, so th- there's you know a strong movement for this. It's really the only way we're going to get term limits, a balanced budget amendment, limits on the Supreme Court. And uh, Convention of States Project is calling a convention for all of those reasons, for li- for limits on the federal government, basically.
0: Right. So limits on the federal government, that can be just about any type of amendment that people want to propose that falls under that category. I know Mark Levin has a book out about it Um I mean, what are some of the what are some of the amendment ideas that that you've heard? Um, which ones have kind of the most popularity among that group?
1: Yeah, so um, I was at Alec. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're kind of an organization, a network for conservative state legislators. And I was at their event in San Diego the other week. And there's about 1,500 of them there, 1,500 legislators. And I got to meet a lot of these people, just really fantastic patriots um, who are fighting the good fight in these state legislators. And they're really interested in a balanced budget amendment. Um, They're thinking about limits on taxation, so a permanent fixed limit on taxation, federal taxation. Um, They want kind of what the Supreme Court decisions have really kind of awakened people to some of this. They're talking about limits on the Supreme Court, maybe giving the states a method of overriding Supreme Court decisions, a supermajority of them. Um, Others are talking about um, perhaps we should put limits on the bureaucracy. Uh, things like that, definitely congressional term limits, definitely judicial term limits. And uh, you know, this is some of the stuff that's possible with this movement. It's, I think it's really the only way we're going to get this kind of stuff done, the stuff that needs to happen to properly reform the federal government. And, uh, you know, you know, I was just really impressed. So they've uh, been—they passed this resolution through four states. They've uh, got it active in about 40. So we have state legislators who are sponsoring this, who are fighting for this in about 40 states. Um, Florida, Georgia, Alabama... And Alaska are the ones who have passed it. And there's 10 or 12, including Texas, who passed it through one chamber or the other and, um, in this year. So it's got a wide grassroots network. They're active in all 50 states. There's about 200,000 grassroots uh, volunteers, uh, which is growing every day. And it's really exciting. You know, At Alec, if I can just tell a quick story, sure. um, this was kind of the buzz. Was the you know everyone was talking about the legislators talking about hey you know should we call an Article Five convention you know which one should we get behind because there's different resolutions out there there's a the balanced budget one there's a the term limits one then there's a the convention of states one which is kind of all of the above type of thing but I have to say the convention of states project kind of stole the show on the week because they hosted a workshop where it was absolutely packed there was standing room only there's about 200 legislators in there but only seating for about 150 so it's about 50 people on their feet. And they basically – what they did was they launched the Convention of States Caucus, which means that whoever – if you're a state legislator, you can tell a Convention of States project, you know, I support this. I want to be involved. And then they put you into this website system where you can go in and start editing the rules for a future convention. And this is really important to a lot of state legislators because some are like, ah, they're kind of on the fence. You know, should should we get behind this? They're kind of scared of how it's going to work. The rules – tell you basically how it's going to work, the legislative rules. And so the Convention of States basically took the extra step of saying, okay, we're going to basically put a first draft out there, and then they're giving it to the state legislators and saying, now it's up to you guys. If you want to edit it, go in there and collaborate with each other. We're going to take a step back, and it's now it's yours. It's your rules. You can do it. And the first draft was co-authored by a guy named Rob Nadelson. He is the preeminent expert on Article 5 in the world. I mean, this guy is... A national treasure, And so this is, I heard this from a lot of state legislators, they were just super impressed by this step that Convention of States is taking, and I think it's going to really push the movement into high gear.
0: Yeah, I saw the write-up on it, and I think the biggest complaint, or the biggest concern that I've heard from people is they're not sure how this type of convention would operate. Um, a lot of people are afraid that outside money would get in. but But I have to say, out of all the movements that I've looked at and researched and followed, Convention of States is extremely transparent. And they've made it clear from the beginning that first of all, it's, it's, it would be very hard for outside money to get in. When I talked with, uh, with Mark Meckler, uh, he kind of shot that down and said that, that that's not something that would really happen. Um, and then in terms of the rules, it looks like it's turning out to be a very transparent process. But I, I'm curious to know if, if you've heard of any other criticisms of of the, the Convention of States project um, and kind of what some of your responses to that have been
1: Yeah I mean there's there's always concerns that are based in kind of fear and not really knowing the history and the process of it. Because people hear, oh you want to change the Constitution, that must be bad. Well no, the founders talked about, you know, from time to time you know Washington talked about it in his first inaugural address, and of course, he was the president of the Constitutional Convention. He said, from time to time the people are going to need to institute new amendments because there's just going to be the need for it. Right. And if you know, clearly today we have the need for it. We have an out-of-control federal government. All three branches are just operating outside of the constitutional structure. When George Mason proposed this convention of states uh, measure during the Constitu- constitutional convention, he said, we're going to need a method for the states to fight back against an oppressive government. And that's why they put this uh, provision in here unanimously. Right. Uh, so it's a very exciting thing. If you look at James Madison talked about this is the way for the people to institute a reset. He said this is the final resort for the people to fight back. Um, there is, the founders said this was the way. This is the way. And state legislators are really starting to wake up to that. And um, just in the ones that I talk to, you know, there's some. You know, I hear the the other criticism I hear is that well, we don't have any James Madisons, we don't have any George Washingtons today. Wrong. I've met great statesmen during this process, and I've talked to many of them. There are really good patriots who respect the Constitution, who love liberty, and they're willing to fight for our rights.
0: They're just not I, well known. Most exactly. of them are, are working in state legislators.
1: And that's the thing, Stephen. This process, I believe, is going to make the statesmen famous in these legislatures because we are going to see who the real statesmen are. We're not getting it from Washington. We're not getting it from Washington. We're going to get it from the states, and we're going to see who the real heroes for liberty are.
0: Well, it's interesting. People always say how Congress should limit their power as if they would limit their own power, and, and this is the perfect way to do it because it's, it, it's no longer relying on Congress to reform themselves or reform any other branch. It's essentially relying on the people, and, and these people in state legislatures are not necessarily, they're not looking for, for national fame. Honestly, if you're getting in a state legislature, um, the reason you're there is because you want to improve your state and you want to be a part of the formula that helps improve the country. And from what I've seen from these state legislatures is, is they understand, they seem to be the only people listening to their constituents because U.S. congressmen are not. And what people are saying is that the government's out of control, and I think this is the best way to actually move forward reforms on the federal government, because the federal government is not going to reform themselves.
1: No, you're absolutely right, and you know, if you're looking for solutions, conventional states is it. I mean, we thought, oh, if we elect a Republican Senate and Republican Congress, that's going to stop Obama's agenda. It hasn't. They've partnered with Obama and pushing through Obama trade and some of these other things. You know, the Supreme Court's not stopping anything. They're just putting a rubber stamp on most everything, and we have an executive who's completely out of control, who's issuing hundreds of executive orders and memoranda every year. I mean, there's if the solutions are not going to come from Washington, and right. I, you know, you know, I, I think we need a Republican president, but just not not just a Republican president. We need a president that believes in the Constitution and liberty, and actually limiting the federal government and scaling back some of this stuff. But even Reagan. The government grew under him, you know. Against you know, he fought like hell, but that's not just how it was. And the budget grew, and he eventually realized that's why he said we need a balanced budget amendment. And the Congress wouldn't give it to him, and that's when he started to appeal to the states for exactly this Article Five process. And they just fell one state short. You need thirty-four states, and I think people are starting to wake up. This is the only way we're going to do it.
0: Right. So, give people information how they can get involved if they want to learn more, if they want to volunteer, all that good stuff. How can they do that? Yeah. So,
1: please go to conventionofstates.com. Conventionofstates.com. It's very easy to sign up, and then if you click the box, they will send you an update of when the resolution is active in your state, and you can give your state legislator a call and say vote yes. I mean, it basically takes less than sixty seconds to right. really make it make a big difference, and they have a lot of volunteering opportunities. Um, in terms of social media and writing and stuff like that. There's a, there's a lot of different things you can do to help them. And, and people always are asking, what can we do about this runaway federal government? We always are complaining about it. That it seems like there's a new headline every day of overreach that is happening with the EPA and the IRS and things like that. And this is what we can do. This is the tangible thing. And you know, it might only take one minute, you know, a month or something, but that makes a real difference if we have enough people. And um, they, I've talked to Meckler and uh, Mike Ferris, who's the other uh, co-founder of Convention Estates, and they said, you know, if we have one or two million, this is going to get pushed through in less than a year. Right. And,
0: uh, yeah. and I, I also encourage people to follow you on Red Millennial. I know that you've done just incredible coverage of the Convention Estates project there. Uh, you did uh, a number of, of write-ups about them. So I encourage people to go there as well. Um, I, I want to turn to some of the things that are in the news this week. And some of these things uh, give me hope. Some of these things make me a little sad. But the latest thing is a, uh, a new poll from uh, Rasmussen. And it's about the, the new polling numbers for GOP candidates. And the Donald, Donald Trump, who in July was at 26%, 25, 26, is now down to 16, 17% with uh, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush tying for second, Scott Walker uh, and Carly Fiorina tying for ninth. A lot of people have been talking this past week after Donald Trump's debate performance and after some more comments that, that he made about Megyn Kelly following the debate and the fact that he was disinvited from red state by Eric Erickson. A lot of people have been saying that his campaign is essentially failing, and this is the downfall of Donald Trump. I want to get your thoughts on that and your thoughts on the fact that he's now down to seventeen percent? Well, I sure hope,
1: hope so. Uh, for the past month or so, it's felt like I'm in the episode of a Twilight Zone. He had this like I'm just like I'm looking at people I'm like, I thought you understood the fight we're in and stuff and right. and just jumping on this Donald Trump bandwagon. I, I, don't, I don't know, I felt like I was in some alternate alternate dimension or com- people have lost their minds, but I blame the media coverage mostly. I mean, they've been running, you know, Donald Trump 24-7, so of course his number's going to go up, but I think people got a good look at him during the debate and realized, uh, this guy isn't always cracked up to be, and I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, there's no there there. You know, he has no real policy positions. Um, it's it's all about him. You know, Donald Trump is all about Donald Trump, and um, if you look at, he even said during the debate, um, you know, single single payer works, government run healthcare right. works. And he said it could work here. Well, no, it doesn't work, first of all. But second of all, do you believe it's constitutional? Is the bottom line that it works or that it's
0: constitutional? He didn't seem very concerned about the constitution. The other interesting point of the debate is when he said the problem with Washington is that these politicians can easily be bought. And then he goes in to talk about the fact that he is someone who has bought politicians clearly that he's he's part of the problem. Uh, But but another thing that that was interesting about his debate performance or really his entire campaign, going back to what you said about issues, he doesn't have specific issues. And it reminds me, I don't know if you saw that Family Guy episode where Lois runs for I think it was mayor or something like that. She goes up on the debate stage and just says these, these you know, random out there things. She says 9-11 and the whole crowd cheers. I feel like it's that way for Donald Trump. And I was thinking about this this week. Donald Trump is an entertainer. Always has been, always will be. That's where he's made a lot, a lot of money. And as, a, as any good entertainer will do, you have to understand your audience. You have to understand your demographic. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I know a lot of Donald Trump supporters. Well, not a lot. I, I know a couple. Most of them I've, I have purged from my life. But I know a couple, and, and they're fairly smart. But, but the people who I've interacted with, who I don't know personally, but I've interacted with them, you know, I, I don't like to call people names. But, but they have, first of all, very legitimate anger with Washington. Sure, yeah. But I don't think they understand I don't think they understand how dangerous his candidacy is. I don't think they understand, frankly, how dumb the fact that he is running is. And so I started thinking about this. Donald is an entertainer, and he has to play to these people who I don't think are that informed on the news. And so he says things like, We're going to build a wall, and Mexico's going to pay for it, and everyone cheers. And he says things like, China's beating us, and I'll make it to where they're not beating us, and everyone cheers. I'm just frustrated by the fact that his campaign has no substance to it.
1: Yeah, and that's the biggest thing to me is, you know, the emperor has no clothes in this case. I mean, he's a great entertainer, as you said. I mean, he's great at getting people riled up, and uh, he he says these things. And I think, uh, you know, it's just, if you look at the Fox News debate, I mean, they had 24 million viewers. That's insane. That tops any non-sports program in cable history. Uh, so obviously he's good at good television, Sure. and and, and it sure it was great television. I, I watched it with some other people who are conservatives but don't really pay attention to politics that much, and we were just having a great time watching this debate because it was so funny, you know. And there's this great moment. I don't know if you caught this, Stephen. Uh, but there's this great moment where Trump was going off, and and they cut to Chris Wallace, and Chris Wallace looks over at the camera and kind of gives a knowing smirk.
0: He, and throughout it, the whole—I I watched the second half. He looked just so tired of, of Trump's foolishness.
1: Yeah, and to me, you know, it was good television. It was fun, but uh, in terms of of an average viewer, but in terms of a conservative activist, I was horrified. And I went into the debate knowing it was going to be a circus, and I told people that— and it was a circus. I mean, you could have thrown up a, a tent and put Barman Bailey on the top of there and, you know, been complete, you know, maybe throwing a couple of lions and tigers. But um, it was just, you know, that's just how the process is now. And I think Trump just played right into that.
0: But I think people are starting to see um, who he really is. A lot of conservatives um, have become upset with him. I want to talk about possibly the breakout performance, which is Carly Fiorina, someone who I absolutely love. And, and for everyone who supports Trump and they say, oh, I, I like the fact that he's a businessman and he's not afraid to speak his mind. I direct them towards Carly Fiorina. And I say she's a businesswoman, maybe not as rich as Trump is. We're reminded by that every time he talks. But she's certainly been successful. She speaks her mind. She's very eloquent. And now it looks like she'll probably be in the next debate. She's made it into that top 10 now. Uh, depending on on how these other polls go Um, but what are your thoughts on Carly Fiorina and do you think that that she has this potential to kind of be the breakout star here in 2015 2016
1: yeah I think she definitely has and if you look at the Rasmussen poll you were referencing earlier she went from one percent before the debate to nine percent after the debate now we'll see if that number holds but there's no question that I think she was the real winner out of both debates because it was unanimous that she had impressed a lot of people. And uh, anytime you hear her speak, you're impressed by her because she has a command of the issues. She has specific policy goals. She uh, just resonates with people. She has a fantastic story. And uh, I think she appeals to a lot of people and are inspired by her. And uh, I think it's, it's a great thing. I think she is going to be in the next debate. Um, I, I hope that she gets more press. And we'll see. You know, She's definitely on my short list. Um, we'll see how, uh, how her policies stack up against some of the other candidates. But I think it's absolutely a fantastic thing that she's in this thing. She's a serious candidate, and she has uh, something real to offer to the American
0: people. I think she gave a really good response the other day. I, I believe it was Stephen Crowder who was interviewing her, and he asked— you know, is it sexist that people are saying that you'd make a great vice president, but maybe not a president? But I love her answer because she says, I'm not running for vice president. I'm running for president. I'm running to win. And she's just really sharp. And I, I think that um, I don't know who her team is. I don't know who's managing her. But I can just tell that her on her own is impressive. I can't imagine um, the team that she's building up. Uh, now, another thing about Fiorina that I find interesting is um, she's more of a, I guess people would would say more of a moderate Um, people are, are bringing up the fact that she lost the Senate race in California, which, you know, granted, very hard to to run as a Republican in California, but I think she has something that will appeal to independence. And I think part of that, unfortunately, is is, as much as I like to have a little more substance, the fact that she's a woman is going to win with a lot of people. The fact that she is able to communicate conservative policies in a way that makes sense is going to win with a lot of people. But I, I don't know. I, When it comes to getting independence in 2016, I'm just not sure if the, Repub- if the slate of Republican candidates can win them over. And I want to get your thoughts about the independence and... Because a lot of them, I think, are flocking to to Trump because a lot of independents are kind of uh, tired of of politics as usual. But what are your thoughts on the independents and how they're going to play into 2016?
1: Yeah, I think you need a message that resonates with people, something that's different, something that's new. Uh, Certainly, there are a lot of inspiring personalities on the Republican side. I think we have a great slate of candidates. I think um, Rubio and uh, Fiorina and Carson definitely fit that mold. I think uh, Rand Paul and uh, even Ted Cruz and Scott Walker to a degree uh, fit that mold of they can appeal to independence because they can offer something a little fresh and a little new and they're a fresh face. Uh, so, I, so I think that we do have a great chance with independence. You know, even Mitt Romney won independence. I mean, I'm not super, I'm not super worried about that. Uh, the, the, the real thing is getting out our base, making sure we excite people. We have to have an exciting candidate. And, you know, for the past couple of presidential elections, we haven't had that. We need to nominate someone who's going to inspire people. And uh, if they don't do that, then what's the point?
0: Yeah, I I, I see a lot of, um, because my big thing obviously is is how do you get youth excited about the conservative message. A lot of people flocking to Marco Rubio just because they like that his campaign message is a little more positive. And I'm always a fan of a positive campaign message. Um, So I agree, it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, in terms of all the campaigns. Now, to talk about some campaign drama, some campaign gossip, if you will, Uh, Roger Stone, who has been advising Donald Trump up until, I think, Friday, Saturday, he is now out of the Donald Trump campaign. Um, He said that he had quit. The campaign is saying that he was let go. I don't know if you know a lot about this, but Stone pretty much said that he didn't see the campaign going in the right direction. What do you make of Roger Stone's departure from the Trump camp? Um, And and I know we already talked a little bit about is the Trump campaign kind of failing, but could this be the beginning blow?
1: I think so. And I don't know a lot about Roger Stone other than that he was in the Nixon administration. Uh, But honestly, what were you expecting? Like, (laughs) were you expecting Trump to be about substance, about principles, about policy? Because... That was never gonna happen. I I'm mean, su- Donald-
0: I'm surprised Trump had someone like Stone around him, who seems to be someone who is actually really concerned about substance. I thought Donald Trump was just surrounded by yes men. Yeah, that's a great point.
1: I mean, and they said in this article that I read that he was like trying to coach Donald Trump, and he right. was, and you know, doing these things before the debate and trying to get him to talk about substance. And of course, he didn't do any of that. Right. He just went. He did Donald Trump as he was always gonna do. And um, Stone, I think, talked about, you know, the Megan Kelly-, Kelly thing was kind of the, the, stru- the straw that broke the camel's back. But I think he was just kind of using that. I think he had just had enough. Right. Um, and there's, there's probably other things that we don't know about. But uh, honestly, you know, the Trump campaign is not going to be about serious issues. It's going to be about Donald Trump.
0: Right. Now, now let's uh, move on to the other side of the aisle. And that is Hillary Clinton, one of my favorite women in the world. Just an inspiring woman. She, uh, of course, has been just involved with this huge email scandal. I've been making the case that I don't really think that this is a concern for most people. I asked Stephanie last week, why should people care? And she made a pretty good case about why people should care. But I, I still don't think the majority of Americans either know all the details about her email scandal or care. So I'll get your thoughts on that in a second. But the latest news... Is with the the there's been a new FBI probe now. There have now been two top secret emails that have been found as part of that probe. Um, they're now starting to look into not only Hillary's emails but the people who she was emailing to see if they still have copies of her emails. And so now we have these emails that are top secret, and of course the federal law or federal guideline or whatever you want to however you want to classify it, says that you cannot use personal email for these classified emails. It looks like she now has. What do you think about the Hillary email scandal? Why should people care about it who are outside of the conservative movement? And I mean, is this a real issue for Hillary going into 2016?
1: The emails themselves are not an issue, I don't think, for most voters. What is an issue is, is Hillary trustworthy? And I was in a focus group at ALEC uh, where uh, Frank Luntz was doing a little panel. Oh, yeah. There's about 40 other state legislators and it was this private meeting where he was just having questions and, and Hillary came up. And this issue came up of her emails and he said, you know, in his studies with his focus groups, women want to vote for Hillary. They favor Hillary. Sure. But, w- but when you ask them... Do we really want four to eight more years of this? They flip. Right. So it's like people are just tired of the corruption and the lying and the emails and whatever else is out there. And we, you Benghazi and stuff. They're tired of hearing about it. And you know, when you frame it in that way, they're like, No, we can't. We can't do this. So I think if we keep hammering that point home, of yes, it's great if we would have a woman president, but do we really want it to be Hillary Clinton? as right. the first woman president, that to me is the key thing. And, you know, obviously a lot of us do want a woman president. Uh, you know, that, that shouldn't be the deciding factor in my book. Right. But to these to these voters, I call them the genitalia voters, you know, you just got to ask them that question of, is this really what we want for the
0: next eight years? Well, a lot of Democrats, from what I gather, they feel trapped. They feel like Hillary Clinton is really the only viable candidate they have. Um, I don't know if you saw the new poll out uh, regarding New Hampshire today. Bernie Sanders is in a statistical tie with Hillary Clinton. Or I'm sorry, he's actually beating Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. Um, but still, a lot of Democrats feel trapped with Hillary. They feel like that's the only candidate that they could really vote for, the only person who will really win the election. Now Joe Biden is thinking about getting in. It's just they call—they they, they say that the Republican side is chaos. I think they're having extreme amounts of chaos. And I'm just not sure, you know, what's going to happen in in 2016 with the Democratic nominee because it's looking less and less like it's going to be Hillary. But most people that you talk to who are Democrats say "Eh, it'll probably be Hillary because that's really our only viable choice.
1: Right. And I mean, if you notice that Hillary's numbers have been kind of dripping down. Uh, So there is kind of this concern that maybe Hillary isn't going to be the nominee. You know, Bernie Sanders has been doing really well in New Hampshire uh, there's calls for Joe Biden to get in the race. Um, but, you know, it's it's really pathetic when you look at the Democrat side. I mean, it, it looks like a nursing home. You just got these old white people in there.
0: The party and, of diversity.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, the party of diversity. That's what we keep hearing. Uh, but, you know, it looks like the old folks home. And Hillary is just a washed-up insider. And I think, you know, even Democrats are like, you know, that's why they're gravitating towards Bernie Sanders because he kind of channels uh, some of that authenticity that they like and uh, a lot of the populist, leftist themes that he brings about. The other thing, um, this is kind of a tangent, but the other thing we need to watch for uh, with Bernie Sanders and Hillary is even if, uh, Bernie Sanders probably won't be the nominee, but as we get closer to the primary elections, you're going to hear what Bernie Sanders says today, Hillary Clinton is going to be saying in January and February. Watch out for that, because she's going to start embracing this really far-left philosophy she has started to do that
0: that's my concern is he going to pull her to the left even more to the left than she already is and honestly i think that's
1: probably his primary goal anyway
0: well you, you've already seen her now release this new college compact and it looks like she's stepping closer because of course bernie sanders wants all college to be free she's stepping closer in that direction and you know honestly a bernie sanders candidacy if he were to become the nominee, it scares me a bit, and it scares me because when we talk about getting youth voters, a lot of them gravitate towards him because they hear, they hear free stuff, they hear, uh, you know, this positive message. They hear, little do they know, they hear a, a message that's about more government involvement in their lives. But I see Bernie as kind of a scary force I'm not afraid to admit that it's it's quite scary what he's doing he's drawing record crowds
1: yeah and there's this increased uh, sense that we need more government centralization more free stuff and unfortunately our generation really kinda latches onto that kinda thing and uh, what people need to realize is that whenever a politician offers free stuff what that really means is higher taxes on you what it really means is higher debt which leads to economic stagnation, uh, which leads to higher taxes, and it's just a vicious cycle. You know, uh, I was re- I'm reading Plunder and Deceit right now by Mark Levin. It's four young people um, geared towards young people and just talks about the lefts taking advantage of our generation. And uh, it's, it's packed with facts and just things that will boggle your mind. And uh, there's this one section on an economist who, uh, who testified before Congress this past year And basically he said that we are in a worse position than Greece financially because our spending has just gotten way out of control. There's over $200 trillion in unfunded liabilities. There's no way to pay for it. The Social Security and Medicare trustees say this is unsustainable. They use those words. This is the government's own people. The Congressional Budget Office says this is unsustainable. We're going to go bankrupt by 2035, 2039. Um, You know, Social Security is already saying, you know, we're not going to be able to pay full benefits here in a few years, it's going to be like 75% of benefits. That leads to economic stagnation, uh, poor economic growth, uh, you know, or the opposite, recession, things like that. Uh, So when politicians say these things, and the other things that Bernie Sanders talks about is expanding Medicare and things like that, what they're really saying is they're advocating for the bankruptcy of these programs. So if they don't want to try to reform them and privatize them in some ways, and people get scared about that stuff because, oh, you're going to take away stuff you know, from me or whatever. Well, the reality is, is that that's the track we're on. We're on the track to the collapse of these programs because we just can't support it anymore. I think – social- just- oh, Yeah, go, go ahead. I- when- <laughs> okay. You go. Okay, I was just going to mention that you know, when Social Security started, it was 22 workers for every one beneficiary. Today, it's only two workers for every
0: beneficiary. Wow. When when you look at it, and when you look at their arguments for why these government programs need to be expanded, you know, it's honestly, it's a commendable argument. Yeah, we should be taking care of people, but th- the problem is that we shouldn't be relying on the government to take care of people. and And that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow because they feel like if the government doesn't do it, who will? And my argument is, Take the government out of it, and you will see you will see those those social safety net programs be improved. I think when you put these things um, in a more privatized, free market type of situation, you're going to see the best programs programs to the level that the government would have never been able to provide. And that's because the government is is not someone who knows how to manage these big programs properly. They never have. That's why we're now seeing Obamacare, huge disaster. And it's because the government doesn't know how to manage these things. And as the government gets bigger, the probability of a program success gets so much smaller. Because as you have this increased bureaucracy, it becomes unsustainable. And But a lot of people don't make that connection. And it's it's quite worrisome um, of, of where we're headed. Um, and... You know, this is a, a very pivotal election. 2012 was a very important election, but I think this one is even more so because it is the decision of do we want four to eight more years of these big government progressive policies, and that may push us over the edge.
1: No, I think that's absolutely correct. You know, if, if we haven't already gone over the edge, which hopefully we haven't. Uh, but we're in a place uh, where we need to make the hard decisions, and that's why I get frustrated with people like Huckabee, who said, "Oh, we don't, we can't touch these uh, social security and these programs right now." Well, if you're advocating for that, you're advocating for collapse. You, there, that's right. just the path. That's just the path we're on. And so I think uh, I don't like Chris Christie, but that's the one thing he is right on: is you know we need to take big steps here to actually address this. And that doesn't mean that we cut off benefits for current retirees or even retirees for the next 10 years, but it's people that are our age and maybe a little bit older who haven't got these benefits yet that we need to start thinking about, okay, maybe we need to scale it down a little bit. Maybe we need to means test, you know, common sense reforms that can prevent these programs from going bankrupt.
0: Right. I mean, let me make the decision whether I want to manage my own, uh, Social Security type of of situation, whether I want to manage my own finances in that way. That's the choice that we need to give to the American people. Now, I want to talk about before we uh, before we go to break here, I want to talk about the the latest Bernie Sanders rally um, in Seattle. And right as Bernie was uh, taking the mic, right as he was about to launch into a speech, you've probably seen the video. Most people have probably seen the video by now these two protesters, there might have been more, but there were two main people, came up to the podium, stole the mic from Bernie, and essentially shut down his rally because they wanted to talk about their Black Lives Matter campaign. Now, have have you seen the video in full? I've seen a couple
1: clips, okay. just briefly.
0: I, I watched the whole thing in full, and it frustrated me. Not, not because these people are from Black Lives Matter. These people could have been from uh, you know a a conservative type of movement and it frustrated me because glenn make glenn beck made the good point it's not your rally it's not your microphone it's not (laughs) your stage these crowds showed up to to watch bernie not to listen to you and these people say if you don't let us speak we're going to shut this event down and you can't violate our first amendment rights because apparently first amendment now means that you can shut down through force these rallies that no one even wants to hear you talk. What were your thoughts on the video and, and do you find it ironic that they're protesting Bernie Sanders, a man who has actually spoken out a lot about civil rights?
1: Well, um, I think it's interesting that they got what they wanted. Um, you know, the, right. I, I'm not down with the mob mentality of taking over an event that's not yours and that you didn't pay for or whatever. Uh, but they wanted more press. They wanted a crowd. And they got it. And uh, what's interesting is that they've been able to stay in the headlines for the last several weeks. With, um, of course, O'Malley's comment about all lives matter, and they're in an uproar about that.
0: I mean, God forbid. Okay. Yeah,
1: God forbid that all lives matter. But um, what the clip that I saw is where the woman is basically saying they're using our tax dollars to build all these jails to put black people in. And what I'm about to say may surprise you, Steve, your listeners. I'm actually starting to understand where some of these people are coming from. Like, I'm not down with the rioting and the lawlessness, but I actually think that Republicans need to start listening. Like, for the simple simple fact that the Democrat Party has failed the black community, and we have the solutions, we have the answers. If you're black, you're less likely to have a job under this president, under leftist policies— in these uh, areas like Baltimore and Detroit that are controlled by Democrats and have been controlled by Democrats for the last 50 years, if you're a black student, you have a 50% chance of being in the bottom 10% of schools in the nation. That's ridiculous. We need to institute liberty principles, liberty reforms that have to do with school choice, uh, reduce taxes. You know We have the answers. You know, Martin O'Malley uh, was my old governor, I used to live in Maryland and of course he's running for president on the Democrat side now, right. but before that he was Mayor of Baltimore, and I have an article about this up when Red Millennial, where he, as Mayor of Baltimore, instituted what was called a zero tolerance policy, and basically what that meant was that the police was basically militarized against the black community, not, not as a matter of law, but just as a matter of practice, and it's not that the police are bad people, they're good people, but but the policies that were coming from the officials, like Martin O'Malley was that's why you see a lot of this division and this divisiveness between the police is because of these type of policies that cause all this unrest and you basically pit the police against low-income uh... communities because it's much easier to police the poor areas than it is to to police the suburban areas where there's more likely to be white people is more likely to be people that can pay for good lawyers things like that so it's actually cheaper for the police to police uh... the black areas more uh, and it's not that whites uh, are commit crimes less than blacks. It's actually about the same, but it's just that blacks are prosecuted them for it more. And I think that uh, we should actually take a look at, you know, do we really need to send people away for fifteen and twenty years for right. these non-violent crimes? Um, so I, I think that Republicans have a uh, an advantage here, and they have an opportunity here to say. We can turn around your community and we can offer those true solutions.
0: You make a great great point about that. The two Republican candidates who stand out to me, number one, Rand Paul, who has has been to Ferguson, has been to Baltimore, has been to Detroit, uh, has been to all these inner city areas because he is trying to share the message that the Republican Party policies, conservative policies in general, work better for the black community and for every community than the progressive policies. And the other person, and also Rand Paul has been calling for, uh, he, he teamed up with Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, he's been calling for um, a, a reform justice system where uh, your entire life won't be ruined just because you have, um, as, as a young black person, you won't have um, you know, these minor drug offenses or things like that ruining your entire life, ruining your chances of getting a job. And the other candidate, is Rick Perry who here in Texas made Texas the best place in terms of education for black students, uh, more likely to graduate with a high school degree and go on to college as a black student in Texas. And, and I I agree with you completely. I think it's just going to take the Republicans talking about how conservatives, uh, conservative policies work for everybody, not just one group. A lot of people think that conservative policies are for the, the, the rich, Business owners, and and it, it's simply not true. Conservative policies are for all groups, and they work for all groups. Liberal policies, unfortunately, do not have that that same um, characteristic about them.
1: No, and their policies punish the poor and minority communities indiscriminately. Um, you know, it's 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 just geared toward to affect them uh, uh, in that way. So. I think that Republicans have a real shot at making inroads there, but they—we need to start listening. We can't just go in there and say, you know, look, we're you know we're the the right ones or whatever. We actually have to listen, and I think that's a big deal. And I, I'm glad Rick Perry and Rand Paul are talking talking about this. And you know, I really hadn't woken up to this till about a year ago myself. Right. Uh, but I think we have a huge opportunity here.
0: Absolutely. Uh, now, let, let's go to a break real quick. We'll come back for the second half. I'll ask you some uh, some really dumb questions that required no brain power to write, um, but I'm going to ask them anyway. So we'll go to a sponsor real quick and then be right back. Hey, everybody. It's Steven here again to talk to you about Octopods. Now, the reason why I talk about them every week is because I use them. I love them. I trust them. I trust the company, and I trust their product. And for the listeners of this show, they want to give you 50% off your order to make sure that for 50% less, your phone or tablet will never die again. And that is the truth. All you have to do is go to octo-pod dot com slash outset o-u-t-s-e-t and use the promo code outset at checkout for 50% off your choice of any of their portable charging devices i recommend the ion3 power bank because it's small it's uh it's powerful and it's priced perfectly especially with that 50% off promo code so go to octodashpod.com slash outset and use the promo code outset at checkout for 50% off your order all right well i am back here with garrett humbertson of red millennial um Really great guy now, I want to ask you some questions. Uh, we'll start out serious actually, and then we'll we'll gradually get dumber, if you will <laughs> the, the first question I've been asking people this it's interesting the responses is, is what do you think is the biggest challenge facing our country today? Wow, the biggest challenge it's a It's a tough question
1: to me. I've kind of alluded to it already, but to me, it really is the national debt. People don't realize uh, the effects that has on our economy mm-hmm. and what it's going to have down the road. And it's not—it's—it's it's basically the current generation, our parents' generation, and their parents' generation, who is taking from the younger people, our generation. And it's—it's it's money that we're making now, and it's money that we're—we haven't made yet, and it's even the money of our children, who—and you know, in most cases aren't born yet. Uh, so really we don't have this money to spend right now but you know our parents generation is taking it from future generations and that's the thing that we really need to solve and we need to stand up for our rights you know this is this is our work and our money and we can't uh, keep working for the government like this this is ridiculous
0: now you said earlier you have a short list of candidates that you like that you prefer who's on that short list Um, I
1: really like uh, Ben Carson, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Scott Walker, Carly Fiorina, Rubio I could support. I disagree with him on a lot of things, Um, but I think he's good on other things.
0: Let me Um, ask you about Ben Carson, because he's an interesting character, and I remember um, when I was at CPAC, his supporters are, well, I'm trying to say, not crazy, his supporters (laughs) are very, very excited about him. They follow him wherever he goes. It'd be wonderful to have a following like him. Here's my concern. When it came to the election of Barack Obama, we were very, um, very upset that America had elected this person with very little political experience. And to me, Carson is kind of that same person. I understand the idea of, of having someone removed from politics, but... Is he someone who should be put in this executive position?
1: Yeah, I, I understand that argument, but I'm not huge into a lot of political experience. I think the most important thing is that we nominate a statesman. So, someone who believes in America, someone who, has, who understands the value of American principles and liberty. And, um, you know, I think Ben Carson could be one of those people. He's certainly, uh, if nothing else, Ben Carson is an extremely inspiring figure. I mean, his story sure. is. Is absolutely amazing. So I'm glad that he's in this race, even if he isn't nominated. Um, but I, cer- I certainly understand that hesitation. Um, but, but honestly, uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. He'll, he'll, if he were elected president, he would select people to put around him. He's very intelligent. He would put good advisors uh, and good people to work with him.
0: I think that's the key for any uh, person who is elected president is the the team that you that you put around you. So I agree with you there. Um now as a conservative, you know that that we have a wide variety of, of viewpoints. Um, I know the people who write for Red Millennial are verge from, you know, conservative, libertarian, all over the spectrum. Same with people who write for Outset. Is there anything that you believe that is, as you know, probably a little unpopular with many conservatives? <laughs> anything well, outside the norm?
1: Um uh, I think for me, it's not something that people are automatically opposed to, but it's kind of hard for people to accept. It's that I don't think a new president is going to fix and restore America. I agree with you there. Yeah. So um, I really think we're living in a post-constitutional society where the, the uh, bureaucracy and the federal government has just gotten so out of control uh, that there's really no one person in whatever position they are that's going to fix it. You know, and that was even true 30 year, years ago with Reagan. I mean, he, he tried his hardest, but, uh, you know, government still expanded. And, you know, we need more than a brief respite. You know, we need more than uh, someone to put the brakes on, uh, which is what we pro- you know get with even a very good Republican uh, president. We would just put the brakes on. So uh, that's another reason that I'm a, a big advocate for Convention of States. I really think it's the only way uh, we're going to restore America.
0: Now, I'm a really big fan of positive campaigns, and and a lot of people have said that a positive campaign may be able to work on a state level, a local level, but on a national, for a national presidential campaign, it's very hard to win with simply a positive message without directly attacking your opponent on their record and sometimes getting personal. What do you think about the national campaigns? Do you think that it's possible to do that? Because what we're seeing already is, is very pointed attacks towards Hillary, the Democrats have very pointed attacks towards the Republicans. It's not looking like it's going to end up being uh, a campaign about ideas and a positive message of our future. Which is
1: unfortunate,
0: and I think you're right in a lot of ways, and a lot of people get tired of it.
1: Sure. I mean, there are, the people are already tired of people lashing out at each other, and uh, we're, we're already trying to, starting to see that on the Republican side. Um, Although, in my opinion, I think it's actually good that Rick Perry and uh, Rand Paul and a couple of these other ones are calling out Donald Trump for you know, being a phony, basically. Um, but you know, it does get a little tiresome when we're constantly attacking each other, and it can weaken the nominee. And I think that's why a lot of people are turned off to politics is some of these attacks. Uh, but ultimately, I think uh, what you see is that a lot of these negative attacks work, and that's why candidates do it. Um, is the more they can get that negativism out there, they can reduce their opponents. And um, I think that's ultimately why they do it.
0: Right. So uh, let's imagine that we live in just the ideal world, right? Who would be, from fiction, from fictional works, who would be the president? In other words, who's your favorite fictional president?
1: I don't know if you might be too young. Do you remember 24? And
0: David Palmer, I, I, I know the series, I never watched it. Um,
1: David Palmer, he, he's always gonna have a special place in my heart. I love Frank <laughs> Underwood, and I love House of Cards, but it's um it's the Allstate guy for people that don't know the actor, uh, Dennis Haysbert. Oh, okay. Uh, seasons one through four, he was the president in uh, twenty four, and he was just very honorable and strong and honest, and uh, you know very wise and uh, very tough though as well. Uh, so I think he was actually a Democrat in the show, but as uh, in terms of his personality and the decisions he made, I, I thought it was a fantastic character.
0: Well, so Frank is also a Democrat, but I like him. It's right. it's interesting, actually. No one has answered Frank Underwood, um, which I think is depressing, really, <laughs> uh, because because he's great. And I, I have some theories, by the way. I don't know. Have you finished watching season three? I have. Okay, so for people who haven't, you might want to tune out for a bit. I I do have a theory. And, and I, got, I got upset about Claire leaving. And, it wouldn't. Uh, huh? It wouldn't. Claire's I, great. I, I know. And, and, but what I think is this, and again, if you haven't listened, you know, skip forward a bit. But what I think, and I want to get your thoughts on this because I may just be crazy. But what I think is that Claire and Francis are out of love, right? We've noticed that, that, they're, that they're, their marriage is breaking down. They're both attracted to power, and I, I think what Claire's trying to do with her leaving is I think she's going to run for president, and I think that she's going to take that power back. Dude, and that I,
1: exact thought occurred to me.
0: Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah, I think you know, she might run against. She might
0: control. run against him, and when she gets the power, I think he falls back in love with her. I think so, too. That's just like a perfect a, match. It's like a perfect <laughs> Taylor Swift love story. And speaking of Taylor Swift... Since you brought up the (laughs) issue, do you think that she would be a good president? Because I got to tell you, I was impressed by her work with Apple Music, and I I know this is like months in the past, and people probably don't even care anymore, but I keep bringing it up. I'm impressed by her ability to get people to change their mind. Do you think she'd be a good president?
1: Uh, I think she would definitely have a lot of appeal. Um,
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: So no i'm obviously i'm not very familiar with t swift but uh yeah
0: i think she would be a good president do you think carly fiorina would be a a good pop star
1: oh that is i don't i don't i think she'd be a little shrill what's that she'd be a little shrill that's Um, my (laughs) possibly
0: yeah you know you just you have to get her out of her shell i suppose (laughs) care to loosen up a little bit right what are your thoughts on Donald Trump not, um, or saying that, that he will not pledge to, uh, to not run for third party independent?
1: Uh, yeah, to me, that's one of the fundamental questions because, uh, you know, if he does, then Hillary Clinton is the next president.
0: Do you see that as a Ross Perot moment if he were to choose to run as an independent?
1: Oh, certainly, yeah. Um, it, it would be the exact same thing.
0: Donald Trump reminds me a lot of Ross Perot because Ross Perot, during the debates, and I granted, I never watched them live. Uh, but <laughs> if if you go back and watch, he's always like, "Are you listening? Are you listening?" Donald Trump kind of does the same thing. I'm waiting for Trump to pull out a chart like Ross Perot did. Um, but here's another question: If Donald Trump does not run third party, should his toupee? <laughs>
1: Yes, you I want to see so? how many votes it would get.
0: I, you know, I think it, I think his toupee is actually polling higher than he is. <laughs> That's the secret. We all know someone, that his toupee is is its own human.
1: If someone would just destroy his toupee, then his poll numbers would plummet. That's what the secret
0: is. <laughs> That's. The, I'd love you know, as creepy as this may be, I'd love to see him bald. <laughs> yeah. I just want that visual to be in my mind. You're the only Um, one, I
1: think, though,
0: probably. But I'm, I'm used to that. That's all right. I want to talk about Hillary's pantsuits because this has become a big issue. And I don't feel bad talking about it because she openly embraces the fact that she's apparently a pantsuit aficionado and hair icon or whatever. So I feel like it's fair game to talk about. Now, in the past, I've asked guests what they think it should be repurposed as. I asked um, whether her pantsuits should be repurposed as parachutes to save the military money, maybe donate them to African job-seeking women, maybe as roofing materials in, in, in the slums of the world. And I've kind of run out of ideas. So I'm curious if you have any idea. Oh, also like like mosquito nets. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, like maybe a camping tent or something. Right. I was a bit. So, so is that, is that what you're going with? Do you think they should be? I think so. You know, that would
1: you just kind of change it up. I mean, he, she has a lot of like very rainbow colors. You know, she has the full spectrum there. So that you know, you could catch someone's eye like that. You know.
0: Right. Would you rather have? Well, you know, you know the controversy with the Iran deal. Obviously, a terrible deal. Even so bad that Senator Schumer's going against it. Would you rather have if you had to choose? Would you rather have the Iran deal become a thing, become you know essentially go into effect, or have Bernie Sanders become our next president of the United States?
1: Oh my goodness! I think I would rather slit my throat, but um,
0: okay, interesting. If I had
1: to, (laughs) I guess I would choose the uh, the Iran deal because I think Sanders would be a disaster.
0: Right. Who do you think is more creepy with women, Sanders or, or Joe Biden? Oh my
1: goodness, Joe Biden. You think hands, so? Hands down. Yeah.
0: I think we just haven't seen Sanders interact with women enough.
1: Well, here's here's the thing. I did actually. There's did uh, there's there's this music group called Grannies for Bernie. Oh my god. Or something like that. Oh and oh gosh. man, they they are obsessed with him. So maybe maybe it's all the female fans that are. You know, you know, if they get uh, them and Joe Biden together, then we see a lot of sparks fly.
0: Well, you remember the Obama song that uh, that girl who uh, back when he ran in 2008 for his first term, who made that music video about I'm in love with Obama. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> um, I feel like someone might come out and do that about either Biden or Bernie or or maybe I a guy s- will come out and do it about Hillary. I don't know. I can see that. Or maybe a woman will do it about Hillary. I'm not sure about these things. It's probably more likely. Right. Um, Lindsey Graham, <laughs> who we now have his personal cell phone number. No- well, first of all, do you think that we as Americans have the right to have the personal cell phone number of our president? Uh, no. But you, you don't. No, but
1: uh, yeah, that would that would just you know everyone would just take advantage of that they okay. never he wouldn't even answer his phone.
0: Fair enough. Do you agree with his plan though? because I really like this plan, something that I think will mix it up a little bit. His plan to have a rotating first lady
1: <laughs> That would be entertaining for sure. Uh, he
0: said that he would start probably with his sister, which I think is a little creepy. but yeah.
1: and by the way, did you see the um the first, not the Fox News debate, but the New Hampshire forum thing? Or oh, like was like C-SPAN? It was like the speed dating debate, basically.
0: <laughs> I did not see that. No.
1: Oh man, it was he uh, in his final statement. He like tripped up on. He was like, the next president needs to, needs to know who she, he, she, she, and he kept yeah, like. I did see that clip. He yeah. could get. He, it's like, oh my goodness, we already have like, is this guy you know straight or which way does this guy go? It's oh my goodness.
0: Well, I, I find it interesting how he's able to turn any question about anything he could be asked about what his favorite jello is and he <laughs> finds a way to talk about how we should go and invade iraq
1: yes and now it's syria too is it's it syria hear. now yeah in the uh... the fox news kitty table debate they had um... they asked lindsey graham about his plan for the economy and within ten seconds he was talking about how we're gonna invade syria boots on the ground thirty thousand troops take uh, Because occupy that'll
0: America. obviously help our economy obviously obviously because when there's war there's prosperity always always that's my thoughts oh my I, I i i would imagine that carly is quite happy to be out supposedly she'll be in the big boys debate next time um i'm i'm sure she's happy to be away from from that moron um but his campaign is interesting and and i'm not sure how much longer it's going to last kind of like jim gilmore from virginia <laughs> yeah. he's he was the is. only republican not invited to the uh <laughs> To the was it the, the, the debate at the Reagan Library? Right. So I didn't even know he was a candidate.
1: Well, apparently not. Nancy Reagan doesn't either because he didn't get invited.
0: Oh, she knows. She knows. <laughs> she's just she is avoiding that hot mess. Um, gotcha. I thought the one person that she wasn't going to invite when I first saw the headline was Donald Trump, but uh, she's giving yeah, she's giving him airtime. Why not? All right. Well, Garrett, tell people where they can find you.
1: Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm G underscore Humbertson, and then uh, Garrett Humbertson on Facebook, and uh, of course, RedMillennial.com, where you can read my uh, latest articles, and we have videos up from time to time, and uh, yeah, that's about
0: it. I I tell people that Red Red Millennial is the only other young conservative publication that I share stories from. Um, None others do I share stories from, because, you know... Well, we're on the same page as Outset. I mean, we're We're on the same page. That's right. Well, Garrett, I want to thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks for taking the time. And we'll have you back here soon. All right. Thanks so much, Stephen. Thank you again to Garrett for being my guest on this week's show. Make sure you subscribe to this program on iTunes so you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, subscribe to all of our other podcasts here on the Outset Podcast Network. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. We'll see you back here next week.